Welcome to Bits About Books, the home for conversations with authors of breakthrough books on sales, marketing and business. Founders, entrepreneurs and individual professionals, we all need to keep track of ideas that are helping create our today and tomorrow. Bits About Books will strive to find those books and speak to their authors, go behind the scenes and understand what inspired the authors to write the books that they did and how they went about doing so. Through our conversations, we hope to gain insights that will help us to get the most out of our efforts. I'm your host Shubhanjan Sarkar, founder of Pitchlink, the next generation buyer-seller engagement platform where our mission is to make buying easy. Welcome to Bits About Books. Thank you for your time and for joining us in this session. I have a favor to ask. While you continue to listen to the podcast, please leave a comment or rating at iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts from. I personally look at each comment and will give you a shout out to each of you in our following episodes. It means a lot to hear from you. Our guest today is Melina Palmer and we speak with her about her international bestseller, What Your Customer Wants and Can't Tell You, Unlocking Consumer Decisions with the Science of Behavioral Economics. Understanding the true end of your experience is really important. There's an example in the book about Disney and decades ago, uh, they knew that the experience didn't end when people leave the park. And you may think, you know, Disneyland, it's over when you walk through those gates, but they knew it was actually when people would go home, get their film developed, and they would get the pictures and look through them. And so they worked with Kodak to find out what colors would make the best looking pictures and painted the park in these bright pops of color that would make it so the pictures were most likely to have a positive experience for people because of understanding that true end. Melina Palmer is a globally celebrated keynote speaker showing companies how they can easily get customers to buy and employees to buy in by leveraging the power of behavioral economics. She's CEO of The Brainy Business, which provides behavioral economics training and consulting to businesses of all sizes from around the world. Her podcast, The Brainy Business, Understanding the Psychology of Why People Buy, has downloads in over 170 countries and is used as a resource for teaching applied behavioral economics for many universities and businesses. Melina teaches applied behavioral economics through the Texas A&M Human Behavior Lab and obtained her master's in behavioral economics from the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. What Your Customer Wants and Can't Tell You won the first place in the Chanticleer International Book Awards in its category. Now on to this insightful session with Melina Palmer. Melina, welcome to Bits About Books. I'm delighted to have you here. I am really uh, excited to talk about what your customers want because, well, that's what business is all about, isn't it? (laughs) Yes, definitely. And I'm always excited to talk about that as well. So thanks so much for having me. Before we get in, uh, I would like you to talk a bit about your current work and what you are doing and and the kind of people you are helping with their uh, go to market and and strategies and positioning and so on for sure yeah so um you know as you said my i'm melina palmer my company is called the brainy business and i also have a podcast that's called the brainy business understanding the psychology of why people buy as well as now why employees buy in and so what i do i'm an applied behavioral economist and so i help people to understand that psychology of why people do the things they do so that companies can communicate in a more brain friendly way that makes it easy for those customers to buy and employees to buy in. And I work with companies of all sizes all over the world. So always something fun to be working on. Was this your uh, subject of study when you were back in the university or is this something you got into later? Hmm. A bit of both, I guess. So I my undergrad is in marketing. And when I was in that, I there was, you know, like one 
section of one book in one class that was talking about consumer buying behavior and the psychology behind it. And I thought it was just the most amazing thing I had ever seen. And I was so excited. Uh, and I spent 10 years looking for you know, a master's program that I could go back and study this and was told by multiple universities that it wasn't a thing. It wasn't a field. It didn't exist. There wasn't an option for me. And so I was working in industry um, and uh, after, like I said, about a decade, found I uh, was at a presentation that was talking about some work that the uh, Center for Advanced Hindsight was doing, and they were talking about their work, and I realized it was exactly what I had been looking for. And they let me know it was called behavioral economics, and so I found myself a master's program and jumped right in. And then the the rest is really history. In that way, I, I knew I was early because I had tried to find a f program <laughs> that didn't exist yet. Uh, but I didn't realize on the applied side just how early I was, because really no one was talking about how people use this stuff in businesses. It was really, really academic at that time. And so uh, had that kind of why not me moment and started what uh, is pretty well recognized as like the first podcast in the world on this applied behavioral economics into business. And uh, that, you know, led to books and teaching and consulting and speaking and all the things. Sounds fascinating. So you started with the podcast first. Yes. Yeah. I was already doing consulting okay. and some speaking, yeah. but when I, uh, I was uh, kind of from a marketing perspective and thinking I was going to like add in behavioral economics when I uh, was doing my master's and things. And uh, then, yeah, the podcast started in July of 2018 and has been weekly and now twice weekly since then. Uh, we have downloads in over 170 countries and over 300 episodes now. So um, lots and lots of, uh, of episodes there and helping to really shape both my own perspective on things, um, which is cool, right? I, I enjoyed having that. It's like mini courses every week sort of thing as I do that research and whatnot. And um, yeah, so the podcast was the first thing in the business in the way that it's constructed now. Right. So when in this journey, you are consulting, you are doing this podcast, meeting people from the field who you admire maybe to start with, and then you find them to be colleagues in some projects and so on. Um, when did it strike you that Hmm, I think I have enough uh, reason to write a book. I would say I always knew that, I don't know, on some level, you think that you might do a book someday, right? One of those sure. uh, ideas. Um, and I knew it was something that mattered and that I wanted to have. And one of the reasons I would say is I would have so many people reach out to me and say, like, I get it. You talk about this stuff and I'm excited. Like, I'm ready to jump in. I want to go do it, but I don't really know where to start. Like, I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to do. Um, and so they wanted that like next step. Um, I had started um, also was starting to do some teaching, creating a certificate program with Texas A&M University in applied behavioral economics around the same time. And so building out content. And then one of my uh, guests that I had on the show, one of the first people I was interviewing at the end of 2019. So the whole first year and a half was almost exclusively solo episodes. And uh, so, uh, Scott Miller, who was at that time the head of uh, EVP of Thought Leadership at Franklin Covey, was a guest of mine on the show. And he, as we had gotten to know each other, he offered to introduce me to uh, one of his publishers uh, because he believed in the work that I was doing. And uh, it all kind of came together. And the timing of that, it was early 2020. And so, um, sure, we potentially would have asked and we would have gotten into some of this less organically, but that timing being, I had a ton of speaking engagements that had been planned and lots of projects or things I was going to be traveling for in 2020 that all got canceled for some reason. And so I had that summer uh, really to sit on my back deck and uh, now devote to writing a book that I wouldn't have necessarily had um, otherwise. Mm. Yeah, that 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 sounds... Uh... In hindsight, sounds very logical thing to happen. Yeah, it uh, worked. There's the silver lining of everything, right? <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So I presume that you had a lot of discussions and you had sort of the outlines of 
what could be the book and and this is obviously something going on maybe you had notes being made at some point okay if there is a book this will be the structure and so on when you actually got to writing the book how did you decide okay this will be this four four segments this will be the four parts that i'm going to do it in this is where i'm going to introduce the concept then i'm going to talk about uh, introduce behavioral economics and then i'm going to talk about concepts so and so on so you how did you go about actually structuring because there's a lot of stuff on in there yeah, yes there definitely is and there could have been a lot more um uh, so i would say that uh there were a couple things one because i've been speaking on this topic for such a long time i have done enough presentations to know the sort of flow of mm. how to share the information. And no matter what I'm speaking on, I almost always start with that. Your brain doesn't work the way you think it does or should. And so it's really important to understand this before we get into thinking about and applying anything or even telling you about concepts or anything like that. Mm. And so no, you know, that comes first in every presentation I do. So that's easy enough. Um, from the podcast, as I said, there were about 80 episodes that are just me talking about something for an hour. So it's like a full episode, an hour on loss aversion, an hour on scarcity, an hour about habits and how they really work. Um, and all these aspects that have then gotten now dedicated uh, chapters in this book as well. And so then as you think about how they work together and you start to piece them in together. So you want to understand how they work and then can think about combining them together. I use an analogy in the book I call behavioral baking, which mm -hmm. is my um, framework for applying behavioral economics. Like if you wanted to learn how to bake and open a bakery, uh, first thing you probably need to do is understand what the ingredients are and what they do like on their own, what their purpose is because egg, sugar, butter and flour can be combined in lots of different ways to make all sorts of different things. So one, if you don't know what they do and you put in, you know, three cups of sugar and a tablespoon of flour, you're going to end up with something really weird. <laughs> so you need to know what that is. You want to know what it is you're going to make at the end. Um, because again, you don't want to just throw everything in a bowl and hope it becomes brownies because it's probably not going to work all that well. And then you're going to follow some sort of recipe, right? You're not going to start just like, hey, I've eaten cake before. I bet I can figure this out, right? Because that's bizarre. It makes no sense. Yeah. Uh, and you'll start with something like a box cake mix. So this book essentially became that, like telling you about the ingredients, which are some of those concepts, and then how you can combine them together following a recipe that's like my box cake mix, a couple of those um, within, within the book. So um, I had a bunch of pieces and didn't necessarily have a framework. I I have now written three books, as you know, and um, I know my husband is always amazed that I go in and I do not have a full, like you're talking about an outline like that. Um, no, I have a general idea of sort of what I think I want to say, and then I just have to exist in it for a while um, and let it all sort of like shape itself <laughs> around me as I'm writing. So I know I write books in a different way than a lot of people do. I also write them much faster than most people do. I I do have a follow-up question on your 80 episodes, which you did solo, but I'll come back to that. But first, let's tackle this. Uh, how fast do you write these books? Um, so I got the go-ahead on the first book at the end of May of 2020. And at that point, we there was a conversation of whether the first book was going to be about pricing strategy or if it was going to be just sort of a more general understanding of behavioral economics, why it matters for business. And so at that point, um, end of May, they said they wanted the more general behavioral uh, science stuff and, and that became what your customer wants and can't tell you. And the full manuscript was due at the end of August. And so if you consider <laughs> that I didn't have an, uh, an outline because I didn't know which book they wanted um, until beginning of June. So then it's spending time thinking about and maybe procrastinating a little bit about daydreaming of what I'm going to actually write and what this might be and getting prepped and ready. Uh, really, I wrote that book in um, 
in about eight weeks. Um, say the first full draft of getting that done and off to the publisher. And there were a ton of changes that came in in the 11th hour where I started doing really great interviews uh, with people um, that just changed part three, especially of the book, uh, of being able to showcase a lot of those case studies. Uh, my yeah. other two books, uh, I've written closer to six weeks to get those done. This is amazing. Uh, very inspiring uh, as well. Uh, for for would-be authors who have ideas sitting there and and thinking that uh, oh I need to dedicate one year to do this so I don't have that one year so I'll not do it and so on. Right. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> um, so going back to your eighty solo episodes, what kind of so eighty is not a trivial number. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it's not eight episodes. Uh, so I mean I can imagine that on a on a topic you you doing. Okay, this is our bit. I mean, there's no reason why I'll say this number. So 10 episodes or 20 episodes, but 80 sounds awful lot. <laughs> uh, what was your process for doing that? Because it's not easy to talk about a subject and expect people to listen to it without substantial uh, knowledge coming through. Yeah, yeah. I And I never expected to do interviews on my show at all. And I had said for a long time, I was never going to do them. So yes, you are correct. They take a lot of time to do solo episodes like that. And especially early on, as I was doing that one, because I have a master's in this field, I already have a lot of the research and foundation on these different topics and kind of and have at least a working knowledge of what I might talk about. So the process that I went to when I started the podcast was making a list. And I do this type of work with my clients too, as you think about like, what can I even talk about in thought leadership, right? Like, how do I even, like, do I even have enough to say for 80 episodes, right? (laughs) Which before you start a podcast or write a book or any of those things, like you should figure that out uh, (laughs) before you jump in, because you don't want to get 40 episodes in and realize you have nothing else to say, because that's a lot of work for for no good reason. Uh, so going through making a list of all these concepts or topics or, or things that I might want to talk about that could be episodes. I already listed off a couple of um, things, like I said, loss aversion, scarcity, social proof, hurting, and I have then some, it's like the top five wording mistakes businesses make and the truth about pricing and these sorts of things, right? So make my big long list of 50, 70, 100 things that I could talk about and various angles on them. That's a really good thing where you can go back later. And when you are in the moment and you can't think of something, you can go through the list and say, well, yeah, I guess I'll write about that one because that appeals to me today. And you can do that because you wrote it weeks or months ago. Um, So then when I pick an episode topic, I spend a bunch of time going in and reading everything I can find about that item. Uh, So, you know, searching on anchoring and adjustment, I'm going to go look or the pain of paying, I'm going to go look at all of the articles I can find, I'm reading very long academic journal articles, some of which are new to me, many of which I've already seen, but I need that refresher on seeing what other people have written about this. And then when I get ideas about how this applies to a real estate agent or someone who's selling cloud computing services or whatever, jotting those notes down. And I found very early on, while I'm a very good improvisational speaker, I can talk on on the fly pretty well. Uh, and I figured the podcast would be the same. Get some bullet points and I can just go. No, sadly, that was not the case. <laughs> and so I script every episode, even still now after more than 300, when I'm going to do a solo episode, write the entire thing verbatim, and then I read it. And that is not something that works for everyone either, because you have to be able to read it in a way that doesn't sound super boring and monotone. Mm. Um, But there are too many details and stats from the papers and people's names and sorts of stuff. Um, I also found out I said uh, the word fascinating way too many times when left to my own devices and it was weird. So had to script it. (laughs) Uh, But each episode, especially early on, would take me eight to 10 hours 
to create before editing or anything along those lines. So, and when you think about that was an episode a week for all that time, it's, it's a big undertaking, but that made it. So there's a really good foundation for a book that when it came time to write it, I've already spent eight or 10 plus hours creating this thing. That's going to be one of the chapters, which is part of why it's easier to go through and, and write it quickly. Yeah, it makes sense because when I'm looking at the book and what you're telling me, uh, it's sort of, I can see the map, how it sort of emerged uh, as you went around. Before I move on to the book, which is what we're going to do next, I just want to get your thoughts on, do you think books like Freakonomics or guys like Daniel Pink actually made this genre, this this the ability for people who are not immersed into the discipline as you were, as, as an academic process? they opened up the, for the lack of a better word, market to actually appreciate and and start getting into it. Because I, I think only when the leadership starts noting these things, mm-hmm. I mean, they, they may be unconsciously applying it. I mean, uh, I would not say that about David Ogilvy, but I don't know whether you remember uh, in his first book, uh, Ogilvy on Advertising, mm-hmm. he had this he had this line, which, which I... Practically, I think I mentioned in every podcast recording I'm doing uh, (laughs) that he said, the customer is not a moron. She's your wife. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Ogilvy on advertising. Mm. Good stuff. Good stuff. There's lots of great quotes from that for sure. And yes, there's a, a flow. And while it doesn't have to go this way for any or every new field um Mm. you typically so there's you know a core in that case you know a lot of that academic research that's happening that's kind of a behind the scenes and then the like if you're in the know you know but most people don't know sort of deal and then you end up getting these sparks where it becomes more popular and then that so you know like kahneman winning a nobel prize probably has something to do with people talking about this more. Um, And then you get Nudge and then Thaler wins a Nobel and you get these bigger books, like you said, Freakonomics, um, which is more than just behavioral economics as you get into that. But there's so much where people are going, wait, what? Like, this is a thing. And then they want to learn more. So those popular books are super important for there to be a market like you said, and people starting to see what's out there and what's happening. I'm very sure that the uh, event that I was attending where they brought in people to speak about behavioral economics and the work that they were doing is very much because of some of these popular books. In that case, this group was uh, part of Dan Ariely's team. And so being able to then be in the audience and see this is something I've been looking for. And then I took an initiative that I think most people didn't at that point to go get that master's because I knew this was something I wanted to study. And then, and then, and then. And so my book, this, uh, you know, what your customer wants and can't tell you was really one of the first, and it was my goal to be in this space between a textbook and a mainstream spark interest book, right? So I want it to be fun to read, easy to read, easy to understand and start to apply. And it's got enough detail that it can be used as a reference. And I kind of talk about it like it's a choose your own adventure book that you can be flipping back and forth in and really using. It's meant to be written in and that you can really use the book. And if you just want a great, like interesting read, it also has that too. So you're not like falling asleep reading a textbook. Yeah, great. So let's let's dive into the book and start with the title. Why the customer can't tell you what they want? <laughs> uh, because of how our brain really works, which is why I always start, uh, you know, first parts of all my books about brain science and stuff. So the simplest aspect here is to know that our brain is actually made up of two systems. And so we have our subconscious and our conscious is how I refer to them within behavioral economics, talk about system one, system two. Um, But I think that can get confusing for people. So, uh, and one of my favorite analogies in how to think about this is from Jonathan Haidt at, at NYU. 
that if you think about your brain like a person riding an elephant, you have that logical, conscious rider knows where it wants to go, has a plan, can see out onto the horizon, knows the best way to get there, and feels ready to go. That subconscious elephant can do whatever it wants. It doesn't really have to pay attention to the plan that the rider wants. And if it wants to slow down or go in a different direction or stop or run somewhere, um, that rider is really at the mercy of that six-ton creature <laughs> that wants to go another way. And they don't speak the mm -hmm. same language and it's difficult. So you need to understand what motivates the elephant and then the writer can explain like why it was such a good idea and it knew it all along, right? So in the case of the brain, that subconscious elephant is making the bulk of the decisions, but we like to think that the writer is the one that's making all of the choices. And so the buying brain, that customer wanting and, and what motivates their decision-making is really done by the elephant. And so when we sit down to create products or services or whatever, and we say, you know, people really should do this, or I, oh, they'll definitely know that this is the most important thing. And I, I bet people will, should do whatever, right? Those shoulds, uh, we say is a four-letter word here at the Brainy Business. And that is you trying to impose your rider brain on a behavior that's done by the elephant. So becoming more of an elephant whisperer is a you know big piece of what the book is helping people to do. That right there is the title of your fourth book. Uh, <laughs> the Elephant Whisperer. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. So let's get into the book. And, and to start with, let's set the context and let's talk about how do you place uh, behavioral economics? I mean, how do you relate to it as a, as a business person or a person who is, who, who is in, in, in transactional activities? How, how do you place it vis-a-vis what you are doing, irrespective of what your business is. Really, because you are interacting with humans and you need people to buy whatever it is you are selling, everything comes down to behavioral economics, which traditional economics assumes logical people making rational choices about everything they do all of the time. And we're human. We know that's not the case. And now I've talked to you about that subconscious elephant, right? So we know that we should exercise and eat healthier. And yet we find ourselves on the couch binge eating a bag of Cheetos while we're watching Netflix for hours on end, right? Like we know what we should do. We know what we want to do, but we don't always do those things. And what really happens here. So over time, uh, you had traditional economics and psychology realizing that something was off and the neuroscientists and things, they started working together to see if there were these threads within the brain that would could be used to better predict what people will actually do instead of what we all think they should or what would be the logical choice. And those threads, those concepts that have been found to be consistent, like we are loss averse. Right? We don't like to give things up. That's something that anybody can pretty much relate to. We've seen things like scarcity, right? When something is low in number, we feel like it's more valuable and we want to make a decision to get it. We've got FOMO, right? We don't want to lose it. Those rules, and there are hundreds of them, can then be applied in the way that you present information. And something that is very funny quirk of the writer and the elephant here is that as the writer, the things that you think you would like and the things you think that you would hate are very different than the way you buy as an elephant. And it's hard to position when you're just going off of your writer brain, again, of what you think people should do. And so slightly changing the way you say something can completely change the way somebody feels about it and whether or not they want to buy it. And that is what behavioral economics is all about. Those slight reframes, those little tweaks that can make it so whatever you're saying is more brain friendly, the imagery you use, the word choice, whatever the flow of steps that you go through, uh, those processes and everything to make it so it's easier for someone to buy or buy in. It's time for a short break. Stay with us. After the break, so what framing is, is that how you say something matters more than what you 
are saying. And a slight reframe can make a huge difference. My favorite example of this is to imagine that you uh, need to go to the grocery store. Let's say you're making spaghetti uh, tonight and you realize you need to go pick up some hamburger for that. Uh, So you go to pick it up at the store. You see two stacks that are almost identical. Only difference is one is labeled as 90% fat free and the other is labeled as 10% fat. You see them there. Which one do you feel like you want to buy? You are listening to a Business Podcast Network original. Podcasting is the fastest growing content marketing opportunity, which is untapped. We can help you craft your audio strategy and help leverage the wide reach and easy streaming capability that the smartphone penetration provides. It is easy, it is powerful and personal. Talk to us to find out how podcasting can help you build your brand and reach out to your targets like never before. Write to us at bpn at bizcast.in that is bpn at b-i-z-c-a-s-t dot i-n Business Podcast Network Podcasts End to End Welcome back. I'm Shubhanjan Sarkar, your host for Bits About Books and founder of Pitchlink, the buyer-seller engagement platform. Let's dive right back into the episode where we left it. So let's let's get into the second part where you talk about concepts. Mm-hmm. And I can understand uh, your handling 80 episodes, which were primarily concepts. You're wanting to reflect that into the book, but obviously you made choices. You you chose 15 of them, and you that that's the that's the biggest section of the book actually, uh, uh, and and that's. Uh, that's also something that that also says something about the book and what we are setting out to do uh, when you're talking about concepts more. Um, so let, let's let's pick up a few and and talk about those. Uh, I'll, I'll not go into everything, but let's start with the first one, which is framing. Uh, yes. So th- this is I'm assuming this is this is akin to positioning or a part of the positioning exercise that people talk about in in common parlance uh what did you want to uh communicate in that chapter and and why why did you decide that that's the first place to start yeah uh framing yes so the while of the 16 concepts that are introduced there were isn't as you get deeper in, it's not necessarily like this is the 15th most important yeah. or something like that right sure. but absolutely Uh, Framing comes first, and that was a very intentional choice. And I think it's the most important place for anyone in business to go focus their attention on if they're only going to do one thing. So what framing is, is that how you say something matters more than what you are saying. And a slight reframe can make a huge difference. My favorite example of this is to imagine that you uh, need to go to the grocery store. Let's say you're making spaghetti uh, tonight and you realize you need to go pick up some hamburger for that. Uh, So you go to pick it up at the store. You see two stacks that are almost identical. Uh, The only difference is one is labeled as 90% fat free and the other is labeled as 90% or sorry, 10% fat. You see them there. Which one do you feel like you want to buy? And I've asked this question to thousands of people around the world, and overwhelmingly, everyone says 90% fat-free is the one that they want. Like, logically, we know it's the same, but it feels very different. Like, 10% fat, you're like, like, where's that going to go? Doesn't feel good at all. And uh, we really like this other version. And so... There are many points where your product could be great, the price might be right, everything else is good, but you're just talking about it in 10% fat terms and it doesn't feel right to the person you're talking about it to. So if you look at these opportunities to reframe and see where you could be communicating that message is 90% fat free instead, may make it so people are naturally more likely to choose you without having to change anything else. Uh, So that how you say something mattering more than what you say is the concept of framing. And I think it is foundational and underlines everything else in behavioral science. Would you be able to share any B2B uh, examples in this? Yeah. Uh, 
Well, the big thing to know when we look at B2B versus B2C, because I do get this question a lot, right? Where it's like, you're talking about a customer, but like I'm selling, you know, multi-million dollar software or whatever else. And it's, and it's to a team internal. And so it's different. Like, so how does it apply to me? So the difference really is that you have a more complex selling situation, but you still are working with individual people that have these same biases and rules of thumb that their brains are using to make decisions all the time. So understanding who the real buyers are and who may disrupt the selling path and then understanding those biases in the way that you frame and present information is really, really important. Um, So another bias that I will loop in here that becomes really important when we look at selling, uh, we'll just talk about something like software, right? Um, And so if you have someone who's using a particular system, uh, that's something to keep in mind if you're trying to sell them on something new and you want them to change. Humans also have a status quo bias. That brain likes predictability and doesn't want to be changing because of how that subconscious makes all its decisions and things. And so If you are selling to the executive and you can have buy-in on all at all the top and you feel like, yes, we've nailed it. We're in, they want it. And then they come back and say, oh, actually, we're not going to like, what, what happened? Like everybody that mattered bought in, but there may be that one power user who's further down the chain that has a real strong status quo bias and you haven't framed this in a way that they feel motivated to make a change. And maybe that person says something like, hey, if you choose to go with that new vendor, that's your deal. Like, but I'm out. I'm not going to use it. So you'll have to hire a whole new person. Right. Yeah. (laughs) So framing to the speak to that person, the why it matters to them and overcoming their status quo bias, their loss aversion is something that's really important and knowing the true hurdle (laughs) to overcome and what message needs to be presented to each person along the way is important because the CEO, you still need to convince the CEO and the CFO and, you know, the head of training or whatever, like these people still matter in that process. And you can't forget those users that could be a hindrance for that deal going through and the way you frame the message for each one needs to be different. Sure. I mean, as I, uh, when I speak to my customers, uh, same, same kind of scenario, multiple people. So all, all of us know about the buying committee. So I, I often tell them, remember that no one person can decide to buy, but everybody has a veto. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. Definitely. Yeah. You need need one guy to say, I'm not in it and it'll be gone. Right. Yep. And so understanding who's the biggest problem and all of that and that process is really important. There are three main reframes that I recommend to people too as really easy things that you can look at changing. Um, And these come up a lot in like email pitches and these like, so if you're getting ghosted in your emails, uh, you know, these are a couple things you can keep in mind. So the first reframe is if versus when. And um, so in this case, we say if a lot, right? If you have questions, let me know. If you're interested, do this, if, 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 right? But if isn't like, very compelling. It's not encouraging you to go take any sort of action. And it doesn't feel like it's going to happen. When you can say when, it's got this implied, like the next step is coming and it's just a when, right? And so that reframe of instead of if you have questions, let me know, to say when you're ready, here's the link to book a time or whatever Mm -hmm. it is. When, uh, When we meet next, We'll talk about this, whatever, right? That when is a very subtle shift, but it can help it feel like we're moving along. It's implied that that's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, The next one is to transition from anyone to everyone. We are a herding species and we like to feel safe. There's safety in the herd. And so if you talk about anyone It's a very isolating place to be and people don't want to be in anyone. And so if you say things like at the end of a presentation, like, does anyone have questions? Is is anyone 
listening to me, right? Anybody out there, right? It doesn't feel very good. Uh, but saying, you know, for everyone who is ready to go on to this next step, here, here it is, right? Or everyone who buys from us has this experience. Feeling that safety in the herd is mm-hmm. really valuable. And so looking for the herd that lines up with the behavior you want someone to do and talking about how everyone like them is already doing this thing can make it a lot easier in that communication. Uh, the last one is just going from a period to a question. So statements to questions uh, is going to make a really big difference. And on your email that you want someone to respond to, if you can end it on a question, that person is much more likely to respond. And it might not be, you know, that you're closing the deal every time. But if you say, I'm happy to meet whenever works for you, let me know. That can sit in my email for a really long time. Uh, but if you send a couple of dates and say, which of these works best for you? Or how how does Thursday sound? Are you available at four o'clock? They're not always going to say yes, but they might say, oh, I actually can't do Thursday, uh, but I could do Friday at four. And it keeps the conversation moving because we're more inclined to answer questions than we are to respond to statements that feel like a lot of work. So those three reframes, the if to when, anyone to everyone, statement to a question are a really great place to start regardless of industry. And as you're telling, and I'm thinking about it, I can see the subtlety and I can see how it will, how it can actually change because the moment you ask a question you're really narrowing down a vast area of thoughts that is in the in his head mm-hmm. to much lesser quantum of things across which he has to take the decision right, right. So it really yeah it's the same thing with um like if uh, you're asking someone to go write a blog post or it's time to go write your book or something and you go Ugh, like where do i even start there's so much to go do and this and that but if you read a draft that exists it's really easy to go in and edit and say no that's not what i want i want to say this and then you're moving right so it's that same sort of action of giving something and even though thursday at 4 was one of many possibilities that they knew wouldn't have worked by being asked about it they're then looking at their calendar and then they see they could do this other time. It it makes it easier. There's less friction um, and less work, you know, for them to do to get that answer. Absolutely. Great. This is, this is, this was great. Let's move to chapter 16. I mean, I'm referring to the chapters just for my own reference and my notes. So uh, (laughs) don't, don't worry about that. (laughs) Yeah. Remind me which it is, but yes. Pain of, I mean, I don't know. Maybe is it you, pain you of pain? I was that was what was in my head. I was thinking it was pain of pain. So Seriously? Okay. Yeah. Okay. So there you are. Okay. So so let's talk about that. What is that? Uh, so research has found that um, people do actually feel and experience what is essentially the same as physical pain when they are buying things. And it's not everything every single time, but we can have this experience of physical pain in the way that our brain is reacting to that. So for one, it's important to know that that exists and then looking for ways that you can ease the pain of paying to make it easier for people to buy. In this chapter, I talk about things, um, including there's a really interesting research paper called Tightwads and Spendthrifts, which is just a really great title anyway. Um, But talking about how, you know, there's a percentage of the population that are the spendthrift that it's very easy for them to buy. They don't have the same impact on pain of paying. Um, but And you have also a grouping of these tight wads, as they're called. And they actually have a actual technical term of being a tendency toward tight wadism, which again is just very fun. I enjoy this paper a lot. Uh, so in this case, um, even if they see the value, they know they should get it. It's something that they should have. It's really difficult to part with money. And even where they would be happier on the other side if they had it, it's just a really difficult piece, you know, for them to tackle. And there are some really interesting, very simple reframes in the way that you present information that can make it easier for someone. Uh, Like, so if you talk about how there's a small $5 fee, instead of just saying, and then there's this $5 fee, made it so it was easier for those tightwads to buy um, and it doesn't have a negative impact on anyone else, right? So a uh, simple little thing like that, that feels like it's obvious that a $5 fee is small, but 
by reminding them of that in the right moment was something that was helpful. And then it's also this chapter goes into detail about understanding what it is that you are selling. You know, are you a gift or are you a utility item? Are you something that people are going to be using again and again and again? Or is it a one-off purpose? purchase. Um, and these ways of understanding if it feels like it's fair, if it feels like it's not fair, and how you then position and talk about it, like things like what should be prepaid versus what is something that people are okay with paying over time or after they've received the service where it changes how they feel the pain in that payment. Um, that all can differ. And there are actually some pretty um, significant, like, rules that you can be following of like, if this, then do it this way. If you're this type, you do a prepayment. If you're this way, you should, it's okay to pay after, right? Those um, rules and those come up in that chapter of the book. So I, I, I can, I can sort of relate it with, I don't know whether you write about it in the book, but I can relate it with the one click payment that Amazon sort of figured mm -hmm. and which became pretty much a standard for most uh, e-commerce sites where you are not doing any inputs at all, but just clicking to buy. So you don't literally see the numbers. You don't see anything. That sort of was what I was thinking of when you said this. Because mm. Yeah. Uh, so that is that is a piece where you can um, separate. And there's a whole, uh, in the episode on the pain of paying, I talk more about uh, in separating. So things like credit cards, and there can actually be problems where you've separated the pain uh, completely from the joy that you get from receiving the thing. So like mm. I swiped my card to get this pair of shoes I'm really excited about or to buy a new TV or a laptop or something. And there's no pain because I don't even have to think about it until 30 days later, 40 days later when that comes. And now the pain is completely separated from the joy I felt from getting the item in a way that is um, really not super well aligned to how our brains work and that can pull there's a whole bunch of other areas that 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 goes okay. into that are important to think about but um in this way something like a vacation um, or even like um, consulting services there's a lot of value in having people fully pay in advance for those things. And then you just get to enjoy all of what you're having in the moment and you don't have the payment after the fact. So like if you went on a full vacation and you paid for it, you don't get the bill for anything until you get back. You would reflect and go, why did I have that extra margarita? I can't believe I did this. I hate myself. <laughs> really upset at your past self right. from doing these things. If you were all paid in advance, you have the anticipation, the excitement, the thrill of this thing that's going to be happening and there's dopamine and good brain chemicals coming as you're excited about it. And then you get to just enjoy the whole vacation and not have that pain of paying because you paid in advance and you like it more because it's already been paid for. And there are some other things that go along those lines. But if you had to pay for your whole house before you could live in it or your car, like that's not good either. So those things can have payment plans. And because yeah. we're getting that continual utility, we're not upset about the payment plan after the fact and don't feel the pain quite the same way as we would if it was something we fully enjoyed and is now over. So your brain will differentiate between the different kinds of pleasures that you are deriving and would adjust to the pain that is coming with it and then be happy <laughs> about it or not be happy. I mean, that that's where it is really going because it's very nuanced what you just told just now. Right. Yeah. Context always matters. And so that's yeah. where, you know, I talk a lot about um, for any type of company, you want to be really honest with yourself about what you are. You know, are you something that people are excited about or is your company kind of a thing they have to have? And if you can understand uh, you like, are you the necessary evil or something, right? Even though yeah. you would like to think that people love you, you know, it's not mm. really that way. Um, Knowing those sorts of things and then how you structure the way people buy from you and how you talk about it to make it easier to reduce, like say, the pain of paying, as well as making them more excited and, and lessening those aspects within the brain. That's all very possible if you understand these rules. And that's what behavioral economics is all about. Lots to think. <laughs> yes. Yeah. There's a reason that my uh, company and show are called the Brainy Business, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> 
I will pick chapter 18 after this peak and rule however mm-hmm. you are free to choose any chapter that you want to talk about okay <laughs> okay well, <laughs> well i'm happy to talk about the peak and rule that's a really good one um and uh i i would say so i'll talk about the peak and rule and then i can also talk a little bit about uh, surprise and delight because they go yeah. hand in hand so when we think about an experience um we'd like to think that we're analyzing every little detail to know how much we liked it especially like you have people do a focus group or something and ask them how much they enjoyed their experience you think because they're being paid or something they're going to give you all the real de- the real story and the nuance but we just don't evaluate experiences that way like if you think about a vacation that you were on are you evaluating like taste points of food against comfort points on the flight and how that is to how well you slept or the noise that something had or if it was hot or it rained and like how do you compare a taste point to a comfort point and like it's crazy we're not doing all those things to evaluate cuz there's just way too much going on and so our brain will use a simple rule the peak end rule in this case to look back and say how did i feel about that experience and we pick two points the peak and the end to give us kind of average there of how we think everything went in general and the peak can be positive or negative that highest peak can also be the last point and like line up with the end if you think about a fireworks show right the crescendo is the big last hurrah at the end um and we have those things going together which in a really positive experience is good thing if you can have your highest peak be there at the end if you have a negative experience you don't want the worst point to be the last point and the research there was some done on a painful medical procedure that they're having people go through um and then asking you know would you like to do this again <laughs> or like if you were to do this again how would you feel about it um those that ended at the most painful point which came and but finished sooner said they were less likely to want to do it again than if it ended at the painful point and then pulled back just a little bit like to where it got less painful so they were in pain for longer but it felt like a better experience because it started to kind of dissipate and as we know about pain of paying you know some of these same things that come in line so understanding the peaks that you have in your experience reducing any really negative ones is good and then looking for those what are your positive peaks you can optimize uh what negative peaks can you remove or make simpler easier uh so that they're not so bad and then what is that last moment like and understanding the true end of your experience is really important there's an example in the book about disney and decades ago uh, they knew that the experience didn't end when people leave the park and you may think you know disneyland it's over when you walk through those gates but they knew it was actually when people would go home get their film developed and they would get the pictures and look through them for those of us that remember what that was like and so they worked with kodak to find out what colors would make the best looking pictures and painted the park in these bright pops of color that would make it so the pictures were most likely to have a positive experience for people because of understanding that true end and so knowing that it often goes further than you think it does is important as you're planning how to optimize your experience and then one way that you can really look at this is to incorporate surprise and delight uh which is also more likely to drive loyalty which means people buy more from you and there's a lot of profitability that comes with that uh the big thing that companies get wrong is they tend to look at evaluating satisfaction scores you know how satisfied were you with your service today but satisfaction is never going to be delightful uh extremely satisfied is always that so you need this unexpected element so expectation is the problem between satisfaction and delight and so you need unexpected things to happen to help someone to have that moment of delightfulness that they want to go share about they want to tell other people about uh that they're excited and that keeps them being loyal and loving you and that can be a very positive peak 
as well that then, you know, motivates further interaction with you. So looking for moments of surprise and delight and knowing that the key to delightfulness is the unexpected is the uh, great way to go. In my uh, third book, which isn't out yet, but it's called The Truth About Pricing, uh, I talk about Pret-a-Mange, the um, uh, bakery and coffee shop, in, um, and they do their loyalty program. Isn't just like a punch card, right? So when you like get 10 cups of coffee, you get a free one because that's very expected and it's like a good, fine enough policy, but it doesn't give you any of that delightful surprise. And their uh, setup is actually that they do, um, every staff member has a certain amount of free food and coffee they have to give out every week, but it's to their own discretion. Whenever they feel like it, they can just be giving those out. And so it's still a policy that staff can be tracking and you know it's performing the way it's supposed to. But for the customer, it's unexpected that you just got a free donut or whatever it is when you were there. And so you get those moments of delight that keeps people wanting to come back and in a way that's able to be, um, you know, scalable, which is pretty cool. Yeah, this is fascinating because uh, as I was thinking, I mean, what does uh, companies do? They they do demos or they do meetings. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I wonder how many are really thinking when their peak is, if I take the Disney analogy, what is the end? Is it is it the end of the meeting? Is it the end of the demo? Is it what they do after they finish the demo? Uh, and how do you delight them? With what can you delight them? Mm-hmm. Uh, again, I mean, you remember at the before we started recording, I asked that I want to focus on B two B because a lot of these concepts uh, seem to me very B two C in nature, and and it's easy to understand that in that context, but. Uh, Thinking about this can be very, very rewarding, according to me, for anybody who thinks about it and can figure this out. It's not easy to figure out. Obviously, then everybody would be doing it. Um, it also reminds me of this uh, interview with, I think, Brian Chesky of uh, of Airbnb, where he was talking about how they talk, discuss about what is an 11-star experience in Airbnb. Mm-hmm. So d- defines one star is that I go, I don't find you, I I don't know where the key is kept, and so on. And the eleven star is you get out from the aircraft, and there is a you know one hundred kids standing in uniform singing a song in your name, which is being led by Elton John. Whoa, <laughs> and so on. <laughs> That's okay. quite the eleven, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so this the, we try to we so I I think so. It sort of connects in my head. It sort of connects the, these two thoughts. Connect, but what I'm really interested or intrigued to think about is when you are doing a very repetitive uh, activity, which is theoretically not very physical. It's, you're not really buying a cup of coffee. You're not you're you're not really going somewhere and taking a snap. So it's more like you're sitting in front of a computer or in a room and so on. What can you do to make that experience? like you said, move from the satisfaction score to the delight uh, scale, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and 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 determine what is your end point. I think that's more critical. I would think that when I end my posi- uh, presentation, that's the end, right? Yeah. But right. That it's worthwhile thinking about it. Anyway, thanks for, I, I think I think this is a great point that you make between peak end and, and delight, uh, awesome. surprise and delight. Well, and I'll add one. So Definitely agree with what you're talking about in understanding the end in your pitch, right? And those um, those meetings and things. And we've all sat in the super boring pitch meeting where um, the person's like, no, no, I just need to finish what I have to say. And there's don't care about me at all. Like that is not a fun experience. And so if you can be looking for how the, not just thinking like, how can I give them all the information? How can I talk about us? How can I get this point in? But you think, how could this be delightful for them? Like, yeah. how would I make? That is a very different way to frame the way you think about that meeting that and the points that happen after it in a way that you can, you know, what do you send after? Is there something you send that's like this weird thing that makes them curious before you get into the meeting that then ties into what you're talking about in the pitch or whatever, right? There are things you can do to make it more exciting um, if you reframe your brain and think about it as not just like another pitch. Uh, the other thing I was going to say when you think about 
not being uh, or being able to be more delightful and surprising uh, with current customers, especially uh, because there's a time of year where everyone sends all of their gifts and thank yous and cards and things which is that like late November through the month of December is when every vendor and their mom is sending you stuff, right? Like yeah, all the time. And even if you send something that feels extravagant for you, there's something else that came in and it just becomes one of all the things that I'm getting at that time. And like, I have to go distribute around the office and deal with, right? And so it doesn't have that element of surprise. It's become expected that people send things like that at the end of the year. So if you're going to send gifts like that, I always recommend sending them in June, like send them in April, uh, February, whatever, right? Finding another time that you can send a gift, a thing of like, we were thinking about you and saw this thing or whatever it is, you will stand out more. And there's more likelihood of having that delightful moment if you made it thoughtful uh, when it's on its own because it was unexpected than if it comes when everything else is being sent. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is such a great idea. Do do you see people doing this? Not enough. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. I I would think so. It is that again, that status quo brain working there, right? Right. And it's a herding, right? Because we're a herding species. Everyone else does it. So it feels like you have to do it when everyone else is doing it. But really, you're just going to be one of a million at that time. So it's not the right time to do it, but it's hard to break that that instinct. So my wife who is a uh, education consultant. She talks about it's mostly not the people, it's the process. Mm-hmm. So so it sort of rings in my head that if I really think as a CEO of my company, this is something I need to do, uh, I would create a process where it's not left to what people are thinking. Right. But you know what, guys, in April and August, we send out gifts to all our customers. So figure it mm-hmm. out. Right. And we are not doing it during... <laughs> Right. Thanksgiving. That may be a good way to get it started. Right. Uh, For sure. Or you could break it up to say we only send gifts between January or maybe it's like February and October. Yeah. um, Because or September or something. And then you can spread it out over the year so they can be more thoughtful as well. So and then if it becomes the policy, it's just easy to do. Yeah, absolutely. Bits about books is brought to you by Pitchlink the buyer-seller engagement platform. Pitchlink makes buying easy by enabling high-quality engagement between buyers and sellers through its presentation and discussion modules. Sellers create customized sales narratives using sales collaterals and personal videos and reach out to prospects through a non-intrusive buyer-qualified engagement. Pitchlink requires no installation or download and holds the entire repository of sales collaterals and buyer-seller conversations. Talk to us to know more about how you can engage with customers without intuition. Call us on 99021-631-32. How to sell more of the right stuff? What is the right stuff? Context is everything and uh, it depends. That's another thing I've become like, I think all my like students and clients, I need like a mug that says it depends on it. But um, really, it's based on what is the best thing for your company to be selling um, and what's most profitable for you, what's the best offer that you're going to be setting up and sending to people. Um, and when you have that identified, when you know what that best thing is, because it's good for you and good for them, like I said, profitable, that thing is created. Then the way that you create how you talk about it, the other items that you talk about in like relation to the best offer and how you present it, that all comes together to make it so it feels like it clearly is the best offer for somebody. Wonderful. Uh, I, I know we have run out of time. I think we... we <laughs> well, the, we, good, the good thing is, so my third book, not that's yeah. not what we're talking about today, but The Truth About Pricing yeah. is the third book that comes out in January of 24, and it goes really, really, really in depth. <laughs> on this hmm. <laughs> this topic yeah so we can talk Great. about that later yeah, then we should talk about that in december yeah we should sounds do good it before you come out that will be good yeah <laughs> sounds Mena, good thank you so much i really appreciate your patiently answering and some of it irrelevant questions i guess because 
but I, I hope you you had a <laughs> you had a good time uh, chatting today. Of course, thanks for having me. We have a fantastic lineup over the next couple of episodes with great conversations on breakthrough books. Subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you do not miss a single episode. Thanks for listening. Thank you for being with us today on Bits About Books where we talk to authors about breakthrough books on sales, marketing and business. We hope this conversation helped inform and motivate as we all navigate a rapidly changing business environment. For us, these are enlightening conversations enriched with knowledge and expertise. We encourage you to go out and buy the book to learn firsthand and implement some of the great ideas we discussed today. We hope to have you with us again in the next exciting episode of Bits About Books. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast platforms like iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcast from and give us a rating while you are at it. This Biscast original podcast is produced for Pitchlink, the next generation buyer-seller engagement platform where the mission is to make buying easy. Hosted by Subhanjan Sarkar and produced by Rajiv Aditya. See you next time and have a wonderful day.